Welcome to the Wild Feather Podcast. I'm Brooke Dunwell, serial entrepreneur, sponge for life, and lover of people. Join me as we uncover the stories of courageous female entrepreneurs, founders, and investors pushing beyond limitless boundaries. Let's explore their creative journeys and pursuits to greatness. Anu Shukla is our guest today. Anu is a serial entrepreneur with more than 25 years of high-tech industry experience. She's an active angel investor, supporting and investing in women minority-led enterprises. She's a venture partner with Elevate.vc to serve underrepresented minority founders. Anu has founded and exited several software companies, RewardsPay, Mobile Ad Tech, Tapjoy, MyBuys, and early marketing automation pioneer Rubrik. She has successfully exited two startups with $600 million enterprise value. Anu is the co-founder and executive chair of Botco.ai, which is an emerging player in the application of AI NLP to enterprise marketing automation use cases. She serves on several nonprofit boards and has experience in SaaS, ad tech, martech, and product companies. We're so excited to have you on. Likewise. Yeah. And so um, Anu has a diverse background and um, she is fantastic and she has several companies that she has founded and so she's going to talk to us about serial entrepreneurship. But first of all, I wanted to learn about what got you started in startups? What made you become a founder? How did this all come about? How did this journey begin? It's a very, it's a very interesting story. So you will love it. Um, (laughs) So I was working for lots of companies, you know, in the Silicon Valley, right in the Bay Area where I live. And I started working with a chip company. Then I worked for software. I moved to software, worked for different software companies. I was fortunate enough to work for some great teams. I was always the VP of marketing and product management, VP of global marketing. And all these companies were B2B companies, software companies, and they all got acquired or went public. And I was right there in the management suite as part of the team. And in fact, in, including my first company, went public. And I was on a roadshow in New York. This is like a person brand new out of school, MBA, right? And so I really liked it. And I mm-hmm. thought at this point, after four or five of these things, that I could probably do this myself. But the whole idea was what was going to inspire me to actually take the leap. So after my like, you know, m- multiple acquisitions and stuff, I started to feel a little comfortable that I wouldn't have to make like mortgage payments. Um, and then, you know, I, I was the idea. So what I saw, what I had done, I was a very uh, successful uh, B2B VP of marketing and recognized as such at that time. In fact, uh, a magazine called Business 2.0 did a story about, you know, if you had a dream team, who would you get as a CEO? Who do you get as a CMO? And I was picked as a dream team CMO. Who do you pick as a CFO? You know that those kind of stories? Huh? Like we had this perfect company. Yeah, that's awesome. Group. So those are those are good accolades, right? But in order to make myself effective, I had created a system for myself 
to manage my budget. In B2B companies, marketing usually has small staff, but a big discretionary budget. And that discretionary budget, I had to justify where I was spending it, right? And I had to put up this whole system of how I dealt with leads, how I gave leads to our sales force, how they acted on it. And the whole job of marketing is to bring in this generate demand. Uh, Social wasn't a big thing at that time, but this whole system of campaign management, closed loop marketing, and then nurturing uh, deals until the sales force was ready to deal with them was something I had put together an actual system myself to make myself effective. So I thought, you know, this system that I built, maybe other VPs of marketing and demand generation can use this. So I said, I think I can do a company around it. At that same time, I looked at CRM and I saw Salesforce automation taking off and uh, I saw, you know, customer support, like you needed a customer support system. Every company had to have one. And I said, marketing is the only thing that's missing in customer relationship management. Why isn't there a company that does that? And so I spec together my idea. I got people that I'd worked with before uh, for many years to, to join me. And I built an HTML prototype, which took us you know, just a few weeks to do, and a pitch deck. And I went and um, talked to 50 or 60, soon to 100 potential VPs of you know, clients and VPs of marketing of B2B companies. And they all said, oh, we love it. They love the concept. They love the idea that they could potentially get this. So I, I, I got excited about that idea and I went to Sand Hill Road to get money for it. And remember at this time I had a deck, that's it, a PowerPoint deck. No, you know, no idea how we were going to build this or, you know, things like that. But we thought through, you know, we had this group of a hundred VPs of marketing who said they would want it. And at that time, when I went to Sand Hill Road, many of the investors, potential investors, they they liked the credibility that I had, that I had done this job before and I was creating a software to solve my own problems. And they liked the fact that we had talked to so many companies, but they also felt that maybe marketing automation was an oxymoron. They really said marketing is an art, not a, it's really not a science. So I said, no, no, it is a science. Mm-hmm. You absolutely can do this. This is the stuff that we need to do. This is what I've done for years and things like that. And so eventually we got a check um, for about $5.6 million, right? And I started this company called Rubrik, which was uh, absolutely one of the pioneers in marketing automation. And that company, you know, we went on to raise about $13 million. And in 18 months, we signed up about 25 clients. And my first three clients were Cisco, General Motors, and Hewlett Packard. And all of these companies loved our software, implemented it, pays us millions of dollars to use it, and got great benefits out of it. And sure enough, uh, a lot of companies that had, you know, um, sales automation and and support automation were looking for a marketing arm. And five companies approached trying to buy us, and we sold the company within 18 months for about 400 million dollars. And so we'd only raised about 13 million. Oh my goodness, that is fantastic. 18 months, right? But I just love the subject matter. You know, I just loved marketing automation. I love the fact that I could make something and big companies adopted it and got real use out of it. And the word marketing automation was no longer an oxymoron. And so, uh, but the company got sold so quickly. The company got sold so quickly. I was like, I I felt like I didn't have 
that's that's an incredible story <laughs> yes and yeah. that's okay so it. i have a couple of questions yeah yeah well i have a couple of questions how often do you think or would you recommend other founders it wasn't really a prototype would you say the html no component? it was a mock-up it was, it was literally a mock-up but i have to say that was a different time yeah. I mean, I'm out right now <laughs> doing companies and, and I think the expectations of investors, especially venture capital investors, is a, that you're much further ahead. Uh, they have they expect you to go right. get funding from, say, angels or join an incubator or an accelerator and figure out a way to get some part of your product built and deployed and some customer really mm-hmm. liking it and showing some trends of adoption. And so, you know, I, I think that at that time we were lucky that just an HTML prototype uh, or just a mock-up and a PowerPoint slide was enough to raise money. I probably don't think it'll be enough now. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're expected now. to be a little further. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, like an MVP or something. Yes, um, we need an MVP. So how many, yeah. How many investors did you have to go to to get that funding? That's a pretty good first round of funding. Yes, yes. So we didn't go to that many. Um, you know, I okay. actually uh, reached out to someone that had been a VP of marketing and was my, you know, he was my, um, I guess, peer in the industry that I was from, the software industry, uh, B2B. Mm-hmm. And he was a venture partner with a venture firm. So he was one of the people that I reached out to. And I would say we talked to maybe five or six other companies of venture firms. And we got uh, two term sheets and then we stopped. We didn't have to talk to anyone because that was the amount we wanted to raise. So I didn't really do a lot, a big shop around. Right now, people will go see 20, 30 companies. I think I may have seen half a dozen mm-hmm. at that point and um, gotten quick, you know, reasonably quick yeses from two of them. But remember, one of them was known to me for years wow. and was a peer. So he'd gone right. through the same problems as I had. Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is for founders to know investors when they're raising money? Do you think it has an impact if you don't know anyone? It has a huge impact. Um, so I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's really much better if you know investors. And mm-hmm. uh, it's also important that when you go to investors, you go in with someone, if you don't know them, if somebody else knows them. Um, because investors okay. are, you know, and I'm I'm a venture investor right now, a venture partner. They, we see a lot, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and so immediately something that makes it to the top of the list because we can't really pay completely focused on every single opportunity so we look for a pattern so it's you know it's it, and, and if it comes from somebody who has credibility in that area or has who's dealt with you before it makes a big difference so you can pay more attention right. to a qualified opportunity versus a non-qualified one so knowing somebody so what pattern very is important that? knowing yeah. someone okay Okay. And then what pattern is it that you look for? I'm really curious. Well, um, you know, we're looking for um, the pattern is the pattern of success that we recognize, like a need. 
uh, or uh, a blank space, like somebody's not doing so. It's a difficult problem nobody's solved before or hasn't solved it to this extent. The credibility of mm-hmm. the entrepreneur, actual traction, you know, customer engagement. Those are all the patterns that we look for. Mm-hmm. So do they actually have to have customers on board to well, if- get funding or could they get, say, I want like information from potential customers saying, I would love to use this. I will use it whenever it is available. Shall we say if the product isn't complete? Yes. I mean, first of all, we want to see that, uh, and this is very important for entrepreneurs and investors, um, is we want to see that you have spent a lot of time with potential customers and you know your customer base and you know that there's a need and you have proof points that there's a need. Uh, So -hmm. just talking to them and documenting that fact and having them as a reference saying, yeah, I looked at that idea and I would be interested in buying it when it's available. So without a commitment, without a contract, they're just saying, I've looked at it. Yes, I have this problem. And yes, this could solve it. That itself is a big thing, right? You don't want to build products in a vacuum. You want to build them for a real need. Um, The next most powerful thing is you actually have a signed contract, like beta customers that say, I will test the product. I'll be the test bed and I'd be willing to pay for it once it's completing my testing. It's hard to get an actual contract from a customer without any form of product. So these two things are the best, two best things you can do um, if you don't have an actual product that's built. Right. That makes total sense. (laughs) So now after you sold your company in 18 months, which that's so amazing. uh, Then you went on to do another company. Yes. So, you know, with rubric, I felt there was such a meaty topic that I loved the topic. It was so dear to me. That was my profession. And I was able to create something for my peers And, uh, you know, I could see that it was the right time to sell the company based on what happened to the market afterwards and the risks and reward ratios. But I just felt that I hadn't had enough. It was only 18 months of my own venture. And uh, yes, we had a good exit, but I just felt like I wanted to build more, right? So I started a company called um, Rubicon Soft, which eventually ultimately changed its name to MyBuys. And basically, that was a recommendation engine uh, for for all the people who weren't Amazon. So you know how you have a recommendation engine on Amazon. You had it earlier on uh, where, you know, they tell you Mm -hmm. people who bought this also bought this. People who looked at this also looked at this. Mm -hmm. So we want I wanted to build that as, as a piece of SaaS software. And of course, we got there by, you know, a bunch of pivots and things. But anyway, that was the main idea of my buys was to build a, you know, a, a powerful recommendation engine for e-commerce targeted towards smaller, large or medium sized retailers. And that company was called my buys. That mm-hmm. was the second company. That's fantastic. Yeah. How, how common do you think it is for people to become serial entrepreneurs? I mean, it's actually much more rare to have an entrepreneur who successfully or unsuccessfully built a company and then then goes back to having a corporate job. It does happen. 
but I think it's more common mm-hmm. for them to then take the serial entrepreneur route uh, because it's something mm-hmm. that you've done. It's extremely, it's something that you like. You like the ups and downs, the joys, the the, the absolute uh, depression, <laughs> the rejection, like you're used mm-hmm. to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> the mental roller coaster, the mental emotional roller coaster, coaster like, that you go on. If you like that, and you have a good outcome, or you have, so if you have a good outcome, you're like, I can do it again. If you have a bad outcome, it's like, I gotta try again. <laughs> so one really, <laughs> right? I, exactly. yeah, I find that you know, there's such a nice reward um, potential, um, you know, that if you build a company to last and then it goes on forever that you may not consider doing it again. But if you build a company that 90% of the companies get acquired or have some sort of a successful or non-successful exit, then you probably say, well, I know how to do this. If I come across, if I feel that I really have a good idea that I want to get excited about, that I can get excited about, then you probably take the path of building it again. To me, it's a very satisfying experience. Uh, just building the early stages. I love the early stages where you're trying to put together a team, trying to validate an idea, trying to build a company like brick by brick. I think it gets bigger and bigger. It gets more boring mm-hmm. for me because it becomes very corporate. Uh, and then all you know, all your emails go from right. being to customers and partners. They're all to each other. And that's the part where it gets boring. If you're just emailing people within the company trying to get consensus and all that. Some people are really good at that stage. I'm much better in the earlier stages where we're just building and being as efficient as possible, trying to get to the product market fit, building the momentum uh, in sales. And uh, right. you know that's the, the part that's exciting. You, you get to work with you know people that you choose to work with that are like-minded and you know uh, intellectually uh, you know stimulating. So that's the, the, the mm-hmm. I keep trying to recreate that. That's your drive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what right. would you say the biggest obstacle you faced as a founder is? You know, um, you, you face a lot of obstacles as a founder. First of all, um, you know, it's a very competitive world. So, you know, um, finding like you're the only one in some kind of an idea, you know, that you've got, which is not, is it completely wild or is it, you know, just finding the right idea, I think is important, is, is an obstacle because you have a lot of ideas mm-hmm. that look good, but then if you really look into it, they have some problems. And as you do more companies, you get more picky about, you know, am I doing the right thing? Uh, so finding the right idea, then putting a team around it and then raising money and the right strategy for raising money and then sort of building the company, getting a team, building a team is hard. Building a cohesive team is hard. And then, um, and then uh, plotting out the right um, exit uh, or it's not time for an exit, you know, it's time to keep going. You're assessing that every day. So there's all kinds of obstacles from acquiring and retaining talent, acquiring and, and retaining the right investors and uh, you know, judging the opportunity and the direction for the product and the company and, you know, engineering a good exit. Those are all obstacles that you have to overcome. Mm-hmm. You are exactly right. 
<laughs> some of them may be bigger obstacles than others, depending on um, yeah. the situation. And the one thing you have to be is very, very, you know, very thick skin because you do get rejected a lot. Being an entrepreneur, it means that, you know, you're, you're, you're rejected most of the time. But you just look for those right, you know, the right moments, the right yeses. And but but a lot you you face a lot of no's. Some of the best companies have faced a lot of no's, right? Right, right. How do you how do you not develop a chip on your shoulder or get you know extremely defensive? Just have the emotional maturity to say you know, see the other person's perspective. They have a good perspective. They may be right, and uh, you know you, you maybe you, right. you miss the mark in just being able to correct that and accept criticism and accept re rejection and yet don't give up. That is like the core of being an entrepreneur. Right. When you're talking about rejection, you're more so talking about um, fun, like getting funding or would you say just in general, like customers, people everybody. receiving it in the marketplace, yeah. everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I used to feel devastated when I really wanted to hire a candidate. And then I couldn't get them, you know, like I wanted that person mm -hmm. to be my VP of mm -hmm. engineering and they were interested. And I was like, oh, they're going to be our VP of engineering. And then they said, no, I was, I would take that personally. Uh. I was so upset. That upset me more than a funder saying, I want, I'm not going to fund you. You know what I mean? Because right. it takes a long yeah. time. It takes a long time and a lot of interaction to get somebody teed up who you think is just perfect to help you build a company, to be part of your team. And then if you don't get them, it's like the whole cycle starts over. And I would take that personally. I'm like, oh, he personally didn't like me or she personally didn't like me. It's not what it is. It's all about assessing other opportunities, just like funders. I've said no to deals now as a potential funder, just because I had a better deal. Not because there was something terribly wrong with this deal. I just had a limited amount of bandwidth and money and I wanted to put it somewhere else because they were further ahead or less risk or mm -hmm. found them more mm -hmm. interesting. So that's that's mm -hmm. the that's the way I, I see it now. Okay, they had a better opportunity. I wasn't like good enough, right, for them at this moment. That doesn't mean I'm a bad opportunity. It just means it didn't meet their criteria right now. So I don't take it personally anymore. I think that's great advice because I think a lot of times founders let the rejections get in the way of moving forward right it impacts them more so than it and you're right like don't take it personally it's business right yeah um one question i was going to ask you is um when talking about founders and then getting feedback or the no's or the rejections how should because as a founder myself, I remember getting mixed feedback, like everyone has an opinion and trying to weed through all of the opinions to figure out, to stay true to what you're trying to do and to tweak what you need to tweak based on all the feedback that you get. How can you navigate through that? Do you have any advice for founders on that? Yeah, I mean, it just depends. Of course, um, there is, um, you do get mixed feedback, right? And how do you sort through what is real, what is not real? So you have to look at the source. Like, who are you talking to, right? 
does this person really mm-hmm. understand the pain that you are trying to address? Do they have a perspective that you respect? Um, mm-hmm. the, the other perspective, so, so based on that, you know, like if I'm, if I, if I'm a, doing a beauty line and I go and meet, you know, the person who started Bobby Brown and Bobby Brown is telling me there's something wrong with your makeup and here's why, I should listen to Bobby Brown, right? But if I'm going right. to a, a real estate developer and he's telling me about makeup, I'm like, you don't know anything about makeup, right? <laughs> so, um, so first of all, who right. are you talking to, right? Who are you talking to? Are they, right. and uh-huh. are, they, are they expert in your area, right? The other type of person you talk to, right. say, is a, a potential funder, right? The potential funder is looking for, you know, am I going to get a return on my investment or am I risking, you know, is the risk too much? Uh-huh. So then you have to listen to them from that perspective. What are you perceiving as a risk, right? How can I mitigate that risk? There's a lot of people that will say, well, you're too early. Or what they mean is, I just see too much risk right now, right? So you have to go in there and find out Uh, what are the risk elements that they see and what can you do to mitigate those risks? And if you can mitigate some of those risks, you can go back to that and say, well, I mean, I know you thought that I could not get Fortune 500 clients, but I have three teed up right now, you know, or you didn't think we could get to, you know, um, XXX in revenue, but we did. Look, we got there, right? I'm doing 500K now and here's how I did it. Mm -hmm. So basically the funder is going to look at it from a, you know, I mean, there's nothing black and white, but they're going to look at it from the perspective of, you know, how, you know, what's my return going to be? How big is this thing going to be? And what are the risks? And if you can, you know, find you know find out how to prove to them the size of the market or mitigate the risk, show some traction, you can always go back to them. If it's that somebody who's an expert in your area is telling you, you know, your your makeup colors are completely wrong for that segment, then you better l- listen to them, right? Because they know they have that authority. Mm-hmm. So this is how you take the feedback, mm-hmm. right? And there are other people, you know, that basically don't tell you why they don't want to fund you. Those are the most difficult ones, right? Like a lot of times I've had people say, I was going to ask you if funders tell that information. Yeah. So you have to, so let's go, let's say you go to a potential funder and the potential funder says, ah, that's interesting. They take a good look and then all of a sudden the momentum stops and they say, you know what, right now we're not interested in moving forward because you're too early or you have a patent problem right? I see some people with patents in your space and you try to tell them, oh, those patents aren't a danger to me, but they, they pick up something like you have a patent problem or something like that. And that's the reason why we don't want to fund you. That's not always the real reason, right? The real reason is potentially that they have a, they know of a company. It's either their investment or somebody else's, but or they know a bunch of companies in the industry segment that you're in and they might be their portfolio companies and those portfolio companies are doing terribly because of some issues in the in the industry right there's a there's a regulation that's spoiling the growth or something and they can't really talk about the fact that I don't want to invest in you because you're in the same space as one of my portfolio companies that's dying right so I can't justify mm-hmm. going into another investment in this area right now when the company that is is the one I compare you to is not doing well, 
You know what I mean? So those are the most yeah. difficult ones to figure out, like this unknown, oh, I don't think so. And then you're like, hmm, what's the real reason? And you should go look at their portfolio companies or investments and see if they're doing well in your space. Sometimes that's the that's reason. That's great advice. And, yeah, and other times nice. they're very so, honest with you. And other times they're very honest with you to tell you. And I like those investors the best. <laughs> I like I them the best. Go, like... Here are the reasons, you know, like one investor wants to right. always like, yeah, you're competing with like PayPal. You know, one investor told me that. He goes, you know, uh, I think what you're doing is something that PayPal is probably, you know, should do. And I see you just running smack into PayPal and I'm not brave enough to go there. You may be, but I'm not. You just told me that. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, so as an investor, tell us about your investing um, experience right now. So you're at Elevate. Yeah. So I'm with a firm called Elevate.vc. And Elevate is a very interesting fund. That I, I'm, I love their mission. Of course, I love the partner. So I was investing as an angel. I did a few investments through Thai angels in the Silicon Valley here. And I met uh, one of the principals, uh, partners of Elevate through that network. We've done a few investments together and sat on some committees. So I really liked the way he was thinking and the deals they were doing. And, and with Elevate, you know, what I really liked was uh, their mission, which is to really serve under underserved founders, which is women, blacks, Latinas, transgender people. These founders often don't get good representation. Uh, of course, as a fund, we're trying to give good returns to our LPs, to our investors, but we're doing it in this mission-driven mm -hmm. way, which is... Uh, serving this underrepresented community so you know we you know and you know we did a bunch of investments if you look at what we've done our record is really really good and basically we've funded a lot of black women uh latinx uh, entrepreneurs and subjects you know um like that so this is why i wanted to be with them because i wanted to mentor and i wanted to help and i wanted to put my money to work um you know in, in, in these kind of ventures. So for me, it's both a mission and uh, and an investment. Now, do you all specialize in a certain industry? Yeah, we're mostly B2B technology. Okay. okay. We don't do a business to consumer much. I mean, I don't okay. know of any. Okay. Uh, we do mostly B2B, and it's an area where our general partners understand it, and uh, they've been successful in those areas, and so those are the ones that we fund. So these are our criteria, and so I get to, if I find interesting deals, I get to take them in and see if there people will like them uh, or, or hear out, and we get a lot of deal flow, so I get to help out with those as well, including helping after we make an investment. I think that would be a fun job, especially getting pitch. I don't know. Do you enjoy getting pitches? I do. <laughs> I do a lot of like uh, panelists, at, you know, different, uh, uh, you know, pitches and things like that. I do. I mean, I know after a while it can get old, but if it's in my area, I really like it. I like the way new entrepreneurs are thinking. What are they finding out? How they are attacking a problem? 
I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are these are some of the brightest, bravest people, and I just like I just like to be around them. Are you focused on a certain geographic area? Um, well, mostly it's the U.S. Though I've done a few international deals. Okay. Are they are a lot of them in the on the West Coast or the East Coast? I mean, they're all over. They're West Coast, East Coast. Okay. Yeah. No, we don't have this requirement. Our firm, Elevate, our venture mm-hmm. partners are all over. Our, the firm is headquartered in Oregon area. And uh, so we don't have like a geographical requirement. We do invest a lot in the Pacific Northwest, but we've invested in California and all over the place. Um, so we don't have any geographical requirement. Uh, we are more a requirement of are these the founders that are underrepresented that it was our mission to serve. I think that's fantastic. Do you have a certain amount that you normally invest? Are you seed or does it go up to 2 million or are you beyond that? I think it goes up to about that. Um, and we, we come okay. in very early as well. So it's all the ah, way nice. like the first check. Yeah, we, we, we've done first checks for 250, 100 and then up to a million, I think. That's exciting. Now you are doing something else as well, right? In addition to yes, 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 yes. I am doing Tell a bunch of that. things. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. So one of my my pet uh, pet activities these days, I would say, is that I was I'm a co-founder with uh, of a company called Botco.ai. And uh, Barco AI is a really a conversational marketing platform. So remember I told you the story about Rubrik, the first company I founded? Mm-hmm. So my co-founder in that company was a gentleman called Dr. Chris Maida, right? He and I are doing another company right now. And we have a third co-founder. Her name is Rebecca. And uh, all three of us started this journey because all three of us wanted to really improve the state of marketing automation, my first venture that I did. So, I, you know, when we did marketing automation, remember I told you that a lot of folks in Sand Hill thought marketing automation was an oxymoron? Well, since that day, yes. you know, they've been like, it's become like a $20 billion industry with many, many exits, Eloqua, Marketo, like so many companies, like hundreds of companies that came about vertical and horizontal focused and marketing automation became a thing. Like everybody was doing marketing. You needed marketing automation in order to do your job in marketing in any company, business to business or business to consumer. So I really loved watching, you know, the oxymoron become like an industry standard and have so many exits. And um, but when I looked at what was really going on under the covers and Chris and I discussed this, I said, hey, they're doing the same thing we did with Rubric like 20 years ago. It's basically email drip marketing and campaign management and some analytics. So they, you know, they've thrown in some video and social, but essentially it's a one-way kind of communication. They're not leveraging some of the latest technologies in artificial intelligence, in natural language processing, and using a new channel of communications like chat. You know, we're like everybody's on their phone. I mean, you may think it's just teenagers, or you may just think it's consumers, but I mean, businesses have to be aware of the fact that their customers are people. Even though they may be people in other businesses, they're using their phone too. Mm-hmm. And their usual mode of communication is chatting. 
So how come you're not leveraging this for marketing automation? It should be the number one thing, right? You should be channeling this new methods and these new platforms to make marketing automation so much more personalized, interactive, and on demand. So essentially, we reached the conclusion that marketing automation really hadn't fully exploited some of the latest technologies that were now available in the marketplace. And in order to harness them, we created Botco AI, which was a conversational marketing platform. And in the middle of a pandemic, right, we're growing a lot because we kind of had a very good focus. We have focused on healthcare marketing and specifically around, you know, senior living centers, addiction centers, physical therapy, those kind of practices, mm -hmm. health and wellness, massage mm -hmm. and is one of our clients, and basically allowing them to put us on their website to carry on an automated auto, auto chat conversation, which can be analyzed and harnessed thousands of conversations to find out what are your customers asking for. It can do a lot of things like wayfinding and being responsive and serving up content within a chat window specifically to what the customer wants to look at versus having the customer or potential customer go through and look for answers to hundreds of pages of point and click web pages, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we wanted to harness this for businesses, for enterprises, to make them a lot more um, interactive and to really improve the patient or consumer journey and experience. So I got very excited and I, uh, I'm the co-founder of this company along with my other two co-founders and I have to say it's going really well. It's also a new role for me because I'm like, I'm the executive chairman. I really don't have like a CEO role in the company. I, my co-founder is the CEO. So my job is really to to work with the team in order to share my experiences and, and help. And there's so much work to do that I do get very operationally involved, but that wasn't really the goal in the long term. Gotcha. <laughs> what is your long-term goal? Uh, well, I mean, long-term goal is, I mean, I really want to be, keep on doing companies, uh, building companies that excite me, um, that I can get excited about the topic. I want to continue to help the founders that are underrepresented through the funding activities that I do through Elevate or as an angel. And uh, mm -hmm. though, you know, my, my goal is to keep doing that as long as that's interesting. Yeah, that's great. So when it comes to the um, getting funding from Elevate, say, what is the best route for them to get in touch with you or other VCs? Do you have any recommendations? Because every VC tends to have a different process, a little bit of a different process, would you say? Um, yes, I would say so. Um, so I would say that the best way to get in with anybody is to have a warm introduction. So whether it's okay. somebody on Sandhill Road or anywhere you know, Sandal Road is just an address, but I'm talking about your typical um, Bay Area or New York, East Coast, Boston, VC, any VC, anywhere. Um, it's always helpful, by the way. I, I, you know, we did this at Botka. We joined the Alchemist Accelerator and we went through that entire program and made lots of connections and got our initial funding through multiple sources, including them and their, uh, you know, uh, uh, their co that cohort. So, um, you know, if you if you if you're a first time founder, or even if you just want to be in the company 
of people that can help you that are doing this day in and day out, I would say try to get into uh, one of these programs. For B2B, Alchemist is a very good program. There's Excel Prize. Uh, there's, of course, Y Combinator. There's Plug and Play. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of things we have locally. There are a lot of things that are on the East Coast. There are a lot, of course, in the Midwest. A lot of things in the Midwest. So you can join one of these. It's good. You're in the company of other founders, and there are people there that job is to help you. And they can introduce you to VCs. The other way is to go and network and get to know them before you meet them, right? So build up some credibility. So if you're going to be building a VC in, say, industrial automation, then if you're going to build a company in industrial automation, then while you're even coming up with your idea, find out who the top funders are in industrial automation and go get to know them. You know, go to events where they're there, watch them speak, say hello, start communicating with them, getting to know them, have somebody introduce you to them. Um, so I think that once you, if you, once you're ready to get funding, if you've already done these two things, you're already set up. But let's say you haven't done these two things, then you should find somebody that knows th- those people well and have them introduce you. I, I don't recommend going in cold at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's helpful. And you know, one of the people that can introduce you to many VCs are the lawyers. <laughs> Ah, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, so all of the, you know, we have like big law firms in uh, both the East Coast and here. And these law firms deal with a lot of venture-backed companies. So what do they do? What do they know? They know the venture capitalists. They know who are the good ones, who are the ones that are fair, that are founder-friendly, or who are interested in your area, right? And so if you go to that lawyer and you decide you want that lawyer, first of all, Getting a lawyer is a very important choice. Your lawyer is going to be your strategic business counsel in the early stages. So you want a good lawyer. So if you get a good lawyer, that lawyer believes in you enough to represent you, then that lawyer probably has very good connections and can be the introduction point into one of these firms that you're trying to approach. Mm. But I always recommend going in through some kind of a warm introduction versus trying to call them cold or sending them a cold email. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great advice. I had never thought of that. That's awesome. So what other things would you, what other advice I should say, would you give to founders or underprivileged, say women founders? Is there something that you would tell a woman founder? I like women founders. <laughs> I like <laughs> I need to. <laughs> I find them to be thoughtful, driven, fair, uh, and results oriented, no nonsense. So I really like women founders. So I don't I don't suggest any women founder should be uh, apologetic for being a women woman and a founder. First of all, mm-hmm. and um, secondly, I would say that you know the one thing that not only women founders but any founder should be aware of. Is, is your business actually, uh, you know, is, is it the type of business that should get venture backing, right? You have to understand the dynamics of venture capital, right? Um, so in venture capital, you make a bunch of investments and, I mean, you, you see a lot of deals. You, make, you have to choose. You have to choose a smaller, you can't do every deal. And then you really want to pick every deal that you pick 
you want to pick one that you believe is going to be huge, right? It's going to be the unicorn. And so you're always looking for a business that can be very big. Some businesses aren't destined to be very big, right? They can be very good businesses, very profitable, but they're not going to be the mega unicorns, right? There just isn't that market size. It's just, and, and, but if you're interested in this business, so you might want to think about, is your business really looking for venture capital or just some kind of, of financing uh, until you can get to profitability and, you know, and, and growth financing or something like that? Because not every business is destined to be. You have to have the makings of a venture capital backable business before you go to venture, venture capital. The second thing I would say is if you've gone to a lot of venture capital capitalists and others, potential funders, and you've universally heard no, and it's always the same reason, then you've got to fix that reason before you go and shop and shop and overshop the deal. Because if everybody's saying the same thing or similar things, then you can't just keep making the same pitch, doing the same thing and expecting different results. You're going to get the same no every time. So you have to fix what they're telling you is an issue and then you will get funding. So, I, you know, if it's a venture fundable business and you can get rid of these, you can listen and get rid of the objections and stuff that people have and have a different kind of approach, then you will get funded. But don't do the, keep doing the same thing and hearing the same mm -hmm. no. I think that's wise advice. So one last question. How do you take an idea from a blank page and get support, get others to support it? How do you go from idea to 18 million? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that is, you know, like I said, as a founder, entrepreneur, you're always selling. You're always selling people to get behind your idea. Uh -huh. So whether it's get behind your idea and give you, write you a check or get behind your idea and use your product or get behind your idea and, um, and, and join your company as your, as part of one of your team members, you're always selling, right? You're always selling people. And so, um, so that's, what so that's what you have to really get to know and internalize, uh, and get your pitch down because you, you, some people say, I'm not a salesperson. Well, then, sorry, you have to be one. You have to be selling. All, ABS, always be selling. That's what I say to my co-founders. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we're talking about, like, talking or selling, right? And... We were talking about how you take the product, you need to build the product nowadays before you can yeah. go with more of a concept, yeah. right? So yeah. do you recommend people getting buy-in before they build the product to see if it resonates or, you know, there's the kind of like that cart before the horse situation of you don't want to tell everyone your idea, right? But then... Also, is it going to be well-received before you build it kind of thing, right? Mm. So I guess doing a mock-up or a something of that nature and then going out and getting market research would be 
essential. So I've had a lot of experience with people taking the ideas that we fleshed out and worked out and then just copying it uh, and in, in, a, in an early stage, right? Um, mm-hmm. in, in an early stage, uh, you know, um, whatever they could gather from us, like, oh, this is such a hot idea. This is like a blank space we didn't know. We're going to go do something in this area, right? I've had that happen. And um, I've also had people... Um, you know, take a look at our idea and at a bigger company and go, okay, you know, this can be a project that we can do, right? So we're just going to take the ideas that you have and build it ourselves in, internally. Mm-hmm. I've had that happen too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's good to be careful and to know who you're talking to. Um, if you can select, you know, let, let's say you have an idea. If you can select people who are really going to be customers of that idea, and you're looking for customers. And go to them mm-hmm. first and say, would you use this if I built it? Okay. Most likely, and especially if they're bigger companies, uh, you know, mid-sized big companies, they're not going to be interested in building it themselves, right? They're selling routing mm-hmm. equipment. Why are they going to build your piece of software, right? <laughs> so, right? So I think those are the safest and those get you the best returns. Go to potential customers and freely share your idea. Before you go to potential funders, because potential funders may be tempted to give your idea to some, you know, some other person that they like better than you because you're so early. But having said all that, I have, I, I have still found that if you are the one who came up with the idea, if it's yours, and then you have something backing it, like you did your research and you really have felt the pain and you're like the genuine inventor of that idea, and you can put the right team behind you, mm-hmm. a dedicated team behind you, then anybody else looking at the idea can't really replicate you because you have something else other than the idea. I mean, a lot of people have ideas. This is the execution mm-hmm. that matters too, right? Like there was a social network before Facebook, right? So what happened to that one? It's the execution too that counts. So you shouldn't get disheartened. Yeah, if you should get disheartened. And in fact, at a certain stage, I am very scared of being the only one in that space. So if I'm the only one, like I wrote this book, and then I'm the only one reading it, like what point, what's the point of that, right? I want to see two or three competitors or some more even, and I want to see a whole bunch of competitors because it shows me beyond a shadow of doubt that that's a worthwhile space to pursue. So there's something good about having competitors too, right? If I was the only nail salon on Main Street, there's just not enough nails. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Healthy competition. Healthy, Healthy competition. competition is a good thing. <laughs> it's when there's too many competitors. Yeah. I mean, people come to me and they go, you right? know, somebody yeah. in that space, they just got $150 million of funding and they were valued at a billion dollars. And I look at them and I go, yay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right. If somebody in my space is getting valued at a billion dollars, means I can get there too, if I do the hard stuff. Right. Right. And if they, I mean, maybe, maybe they're ahead of me yeah. and they got to a billion dollars. Maybe I'll get to five hundred, but at least it shows I can get somewhere, versus I'm the only player and trying to convince people they should do this thing. So competition is good. You should be careful how you disseminate your idea, but don't be paranoid. Because unless you have the executing team behind it, ideas are a dime a dozen. True. True. 
and what you act on it, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Sometimes though, I think as a serial entrepreneur, you just have idea after idea after idea, right? It's like, oh my goodness, how do I, what do I do first? Do you ever have that going on in your mind? Yes, yes, I'm always looking. So I have an active mind. I'm always looking at different ideas that, you know, that that um, that attract me. But I find that mm -hmm. I have my ears. Like marketing, MarTech is obviously, that's my first company was in MarTech. I look at all things MarTech in a very interested way. And I'm always searching for things in there. Uh, I also did a bunch of fintech kind of companies, ad tech and fintech. So I'm always looking at ad tech, always looking at fintech. So it's like these areas that I'm, you know, I'm I'm really looking at. That's a special kind of entrepreneur, you know, that can look at going to Mars and making electric cars. That's Elon Musk. Those are very rare people, right? They can go after six industries and break mm -hmm. them all. I'm nowhere there. I'm looking at my few pawns and I keep trying to innovate in there. I find things interesting, fascinating in there. And then I go after it and really, really research it. At the end of it, I just go, mm, there was nothing there, right? I mean, I see just too many problems mm -hmm. in there, but I kind of stay in some of, some of my related spaces. I'm not like bouncing, you know, between, you know, um, construction and media or whatever. I mean, I, I think I could get there, but I'm not there yet. Do you want to get there? Yes, I do. I do. I'm now starting <laughs> to look at some other very interesting areas. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Anywhere where there's a chance for innovation and improvement is kind of exciting, I think. So it could be anything, really. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it just that you have to have enough knowledge of that space to know, you know, that it's innovative, right? So you have to somehow right. get into that that mode of studying yeah. that area. Yeah. So two more questions. What motivates you and what keeps you motivated? And what is the biggest impact that you would like to have? Hmm. So what motivates me is the, uh, the chance to create something that from scratch that's never been done before that will vastly improve mm -hmm. outcomes for my potential clients. So I get excited about that. I don't think marketing or sales or any of these things are too trivial. I, you know, I think they are very important. And I think innovation in those spaces or any space which can positively impact the outcomes for many people is like really, really interesting and motivating. So that's what motivates me is to build something from scratch. It's just the whole journey is very exciting, which is why you can see I've done so many of these startups. And what was the net, what was the other mm -hmm. question? What is the biggest impact that you would like to make or how would you like to impact? Yes, I would like world. to have, uh, yeah, I have a number of 10. Um, 10 is the number of entrepreneurs that I want to help to start their own companies and help them all the way. This 10 of the underserved oh, founders. fantastic. Yes, that's my number yeah. right now. How many are you at now? <laughs> I am on, I would say I've, I've done one, two, four of them already. So I want to get to 10. Oh. And those are people that I'm helping and they're, they're growing and I'm mentoring them and I'm spending enough time with them to make sure that they have, they achieve their entrepreneurial journey. That's what I would like to. That's great. 
I'm yeah. very confident that you will achieve that goal. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. So if, if someone wants to connect with you, where should they go to connect with you or what's the easiest way to, uh, um, the easiest way is email. I'm very good on my email. Okay. So I am on LinkedIn. So it's a uh, link dot you know, the LinkedIn sort of tag. You can look it up. I'm also you, you know, my email, new.shukla at botco.ai. Um, that's a good email for me. My LinkedIn is good. I'm not much on Twitter and Facebook is more like a personal thing. So LinkedIn, I think is best. And my email is the best. Well, awesome. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate you taking some time today and sharing all this valuable insight and information with us. And, um, we just really appreciate everything that you're doing. You are an inspiration for sure. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, the the time that you gave me and the ability to speak my mind freely. And I'm happy to help out others. Please feel feel free to share my information. And you know, if you have a a tip that you need from me or anything I can do for people, um, you know, if you can just email me, I'll be good at follow up. But yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. All right. I have a few founders in mind that are um, that are looking for funding and they're underprivileged. So I'm kind of excited to Absolutely. connect the two of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so All much. Right. I appreciate it. And I hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you. Take care. Feel free to follow right, up with anything else. Okay. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Wild Feather. Be authentic, be limitless, and love yourself. Mm-hmm.